0: The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com.
1: We've been working our way passage by passage through the book of Genesis. And today the next passage we come to is Genesis 29, 1 through 30. So I'll be reading a selection of verses from that passage. It says, Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. (coughs) Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well, and see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh and he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your, young daughter, your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her, Her to any other man, stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me, that I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. May God bless the reading of this word.
0: Mike, let's pray together. Father, we're told that there are different kinds of soils on which the seed of your word falls. Thorny soil, rocky soil, soil on a path, and good fertile soil. And it's only when the seed falls on that last kind of soil that it actually produces fruit. So please, God, help us to be that fertile soil this morning so that the seed of your word can take root and bear fruit in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. I heard a story recently of a man in London rudely pushing past another man on the subway. And yet, instead of apologizing, this man hurled a rather obscene insult at the other man and went away rather quickly. But that's not the end of the story because, as it turned out, the man who did this was on his way to a job interview. And uh, as he arrived at the place where his job interview was to take place and was ushered into the office of the person responsible for interviewing him, who do you think should it be but the very same man that he had so rudely pushed and insulted on the subway? Now, I don't really know the end of that story, how the interview ended up going, but I would imagine not very well. And things often have a way of turning out like that, don't they? I believe the saying is, what goes around comes around. And that is certainly the case here in our main passage of Genesis 29. Now, just to remind you of what's been going on in the narrative of Genesis, back in chapter 27, a man named Jacob had tricked his father Isaac into pronouncing a blessing on him instead of pronouncing it over his brother Esau. Now, this blessing was quite valuable because it was understood to determine the respective futures of Jacob and Esau. And typically, this kind of blessing would be pronounced uh, by a father over his firstborn son, who in this case was Esau. Yet Jacob knew that his father's eyesight wasn't very good. And so he went to great lengths to disguise himself so that he even looked and smelled like his brother Esau. And it worked. Jacob went in to see Isaac, his father, pretended to be Esau, and successfully obtained Isaac's blessing. Of course, in order to do so, he had to tell a series of bald-faced lies to his father. But, hey, you got to do what you got to do, right? So Jacob did. He obtained the blessing by lying To his own father. Not surprisingly, when Esau discovered what Jacob had done, he wasn't all that thrilled about it. And in fact, he actively made plans to kill Jacob. Now I'm sure all of us who have siblings have gotten frustrated with our siblings from time to time, right? Like, especially when we were growing up, maybe it was a, I don't know, a game of Monopoly that went bad or something like that. But this, what we're seeing here, was another level. Like, Esau didn't just want to kill Jacob. He was legitimately, seriously making plans to kill his brother. Fortunately, though, their mom found out about it and sent Jacob away before anything bad could happen. And that's the situation in which Jacob finds himself here in Genesis 29. He's on his own and on the run. So he goes to where his relatives live, several hundred miles away, with the hope that he could stay with them for a while till Esau calms himself down. And also, Jacob's hoping to get a wife. Look at verses 1 through 3. "'Then Jacob went on his journey "'and came to the land of the people of the east. "'As he looked, he saw a well in the field, "'and, behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, "'for out of that well the flocks were watered. "'The stone on the well's mouth was large.' And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. So basically there was a communal well at that location that had a large stone over it to keep the water from becoming contaminated when the well wasn't being used. And typically it would take a few men to move that stone away. So the shepherds of the area apparently had an a habit of meeting there at a particular time of day so that they could all get water for their flocks. Then in the subsequent verses, Jacob asks these shepherds if they've ever heard of Laban, his uncle. And they say that they have heard of Laban and actually that Laban's daughter Rachel is on her way to the well with the sheep that, that she shepherds. We then read this in verses 9 and 10. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Now, remember that removing that stone was typically a job for several men to do. But Jacob apparently does it by himself, right? So, you know, and guys, I'll just say, sometimes you just got to do what you got to do if you're looking for a wife. You know, I could just picture Jacob there, you know, rolling up his sleeves, rubbing his hands together and showing that stone. Who's boss? That's what you got to do. I remember um, actually when Becky and I were, were first dating, like just started dating. We went on this hike through a wood, the woods one time and there was a tree about this, maybe this big with a rock, a large rock, about 20 feet high with a flat face on it. I don't know what got into me, but as a young 27 or 21-year-old guy, I just got this idea in my head. I don't know, I wanted to express my masculinity somehow, so I thought that tree needed climbing. So I just put my feet on the rock and just shimmied right up the tree like it was nothing. And Becky saw that, and, well, she ended up marrying. me. So that's how it's done. I didn't know Genesis 29, but you can see some very relevant biblical principles for, for our lives today. So some wonderful wisdom that we find, especially for all you single guys in Genesis 29. Those older guys, maybe, you know, once you get 30, like, don't, just don't try that. But the younger you are, the better. So, but then after seeing uh, Jacob accomplish this impressive feat and learning about who he is, Rachel runs home and tells her dad Laban the exciting news, that Jacob is in town. Then verses 13 and 14 tell us, As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And uh, Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Now as we'll see, Laban is a pretty devious and conniving guy. So I'm sure the gears in Laban's head were already turning as he considered how he could exploit this situation for his own personal gain. Jacob then offers to serve Laban uh, for seven years as a kind of dowry payment in order to obtain Rachel as his wife. Look at verses 18 through 20. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Obviously, that is one heck of a dowry payment, but Jacob was so head over heels in love with Rachel that he didn't even care. It says that the seven years only seemed like a few days to him. We then read in verses 21 through 28, Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. So it turns out that old Uncle Laban is quite the con artist. Uh, Back in ancient Mesopotamian culture, the way weddings worked is that there was a huge wedding feast for an entire week Uh, that you see references to the the weeks there. That's what it's talking about. The, The wedding feast would last a week. And after the first day's festivities, the groom would wrap his cloak around the bride and take her to his tent where the marriage would then be consummated. And you have to remember that it was very dark. Remember, it, it was, they didn't have electricity back then, right? And it was nighttime, so it would have been very dark. And Jacob was probably also more than a little drunk. Not only that, the bride would have been wearing a veil over her face. And so if you put all three of those things together, the darkness the alcohol and the veil, and you could see how it was very possible for Jacob to actually not realize that the woman he was consummating a marriage to was Leah and not Rachel. Surprise, right? So Jacob confronts Laban in verse 25 and asks, what is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then, Have you deceived me? And you have to wonder at this point whether Jacob heard the irony in his own words. That word translated deceived has the same stem in the original Hebrew language as the word used to describe Jacob deceiving his father Isaac back in chapter 27. Again, what goes around comes around. So after deceiving his father Isaac, Jacob is deceived by his uncle Laban. If you're taking notes, that's the main idea of this passage. After deceiving his father Isaac, Jacob is deceived by his uncle Laban. The deceiver is deceived. The con artist is conned. Jacob gets a taste of his own medicine. And of course, this is anything but a coincidence, as we can clearly see from other passages of scripture, such as Galatians 6, 7, and 8. These verses from Galatians are really neat because they distill down into explicit propositional form what's being taught implicitly in the narrative of Genesis 29. It's amazing how closely aligned these two passages are. And so I'd actually like to spend a little bit of time in Galatians here. Look at what it says. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So the Apostle Paul first gives his readers a warning. Do not be deceived, he says. Paul says this, of course, because it's very easy to be deceived about these things. We're often tempted to think that the foolish and sinful things we do will never catch up with us. So we continue on in our foolish and sinful ways, naively assuming that just because there isn't any immediate consequence for our behavior, that there won't be any consequence at all. Kind of like when someone maybe runs up a huge debt on their credit card, as if it weren't real money, and as if that bill won't eventually come due. That's the mindset that many people are tempted to have in many different aspects of their lives. I imagine Jacob was probably thinking along those lines back in Genesis 27. Yet Paul tells us not to be deceived, and then states that God is not mocked. If it were true that there were no consequences for sin, it would be a mockery of God's justice. Paul then says, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Those nine words really sum it all up, don't they? For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. You don't plant corn in the spring and then discover in the fall that you're harvesting potatoes, right? You don't plant wheat and then you know several months later you have a field full of soybeans. That's not the way it works. Instead, One of the most basic rules of agriculture is that whatever you put into the ground is what you'll get out of the ground. It's a universal law that applies to every agricultural endeavor. For the young farmer, just as much as the old farmer, experienced and inexperienced, someone in the northern hemisphere or southern hemisphere, it doesn't matter. Whatever you sow is what you'll one day reap. No exceptions. And the same is true in our lives. Back in our main passage, Jacob sowed seeds of deception and reaped a harvest of being deceived. And after that, in Galatians 6, we're told that there are two options. Paul writes in verse 8, "For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. Now, in this context, the word flesh there refers to the sinful desires of our wayward hearts. So to sow to our own flesh means following those sinful desires. And the result of that, Paul says, is corruption. Uh, When you think of corruption, think of the process of wood decaying. Or uh, food scraps gradually decomposing. Or uh, maybe the best example, given the fact that we live in Pittsburgh, is what's happening to many of the bottom of many of our vehicles out there as the result of the salt used on the roads during the wintertime. I don't know if you've ever failed an inspection because of rust before, but that's a perfect example of the process of corruption. The metal is being corrupted. And that is what we reap as a result of sowing to the flesh, Paul says. Not only will we uh, one day reap corruption in the form of God's eternal punishment, but we'll also reap corruption in the form of the misery and heartache and ruin and hardships that our sins bring upon us even in this life. Think of all the consequences, for example, that Jacob experienced as a result of his devious and deceptive behavior. He became estranged from his brother Esau, drove a wedge between himself and his father Isaac, and he was forced to leave behind everything that was familiar to him as he fled for his life. That included having to say goodbye to his beloved mother, whom he would never see again before she died, by the way and as well as leaving behind the comfortable living situation that he enjoyed as a member of a very wealthy family. And obviously, in our main passage, Jacob's also exploited by his uncle for numerous years. So Jacob learned the hard way that, as Paul says, one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. And there are plenty of different ways in which that's also true, of us today sin has all kinds of different consequences even in this life it often has relational consequences emotional consequences financial consequences legal consequences physical consequences and of course spiritual consequences and that's true even for those of us who are Christians you know even though we'd never say it out loud we can sometimes assume that as Christians we can commit certain smaller sins without any consequences. You know, we can just commit these sins in secret, ask God's forgiveness, and everything will be just fine, right? Yet in reality, that's not right at all. Sin always has consequences. I mean, just take pornography as an example. Perhaps some Christian men in particular in certain moments of weakness are tempted to think that they can just anonymously get on a certain website, look at what they want to look at, and then leave the website and ask God's forgiveness and everything will be okay without any effects. No real harm done, no significant consequences nothing much to worry about. And yet that's just not true. Even a single lustful thought is going to have consequences in your life. And the same goes for other sins as well. Gossip, envy, pride, whatever it is, they all have consequences. Most notably, Sin will always affect your relationship with God, eroding the fabric of that relationship and diminishing your view of God's glory and robbing you of closeness and communion with God. Not only that, sin will also affect your relationships with other people in some way and to some degree. And lastly, sin has a profound effect. On your heart in a certain sense it becomes a part of you you're just like the food we eat physically becomes in some sense a part of us the things we do spiritually become a part of us as well a theologian named J.C. Ryle writes that every fresh act of sin lessens fear and remorse hardens our hearts blunts the edge of our conscience and increases our evil inclination. So it just becomes part of our mentality and our perspective and our mindset, the sins we commit. Ryle then observes how sin has a way of picking up momentum in our lives very quickly. He compares it to a boulder rolling down a hill. You know, the, the longer that boulder continues rolling down the hill, the faster it begins rolling. It picks up speed. It rolls faster and faster and therefore becomes harder and harder to slow down. And that's the way it is with our sin. Ryle states, believe me, you cannot stand still in the affairs of your souls. Habits of good or evil are daily strengthening in your hearts. Every day, you are either getting nearer to God or further off. Or in the words of Galatians 6-7, whatever one sows, that will he also reap. So just to get super practical, um, how have you been sowing the seeds of your life? Every moment you live is a seed. Everything you do, every decision you make, it's a seed. So how have you been sowing those seeds? Even this past week or this past month. So let's start with just general things related to your own physical and spiritual health. And by the way, as I go through these things, about to go through a lot of things here, um, you're not going to have time to write them all down. But I would encourage you maybe just to, to think of two or three that seem especially relevant to you and try to get those so general things related to your own physical and spiritual health are you being a good steward of your body through a healthy diet and regular exercise is there anything that's controlling you that shouldn't be examples might include alcohol or prescription drugs or caffeine or smoking also are you maintaining a healthy spiritual diet this refers to anything you're allowing yourself to take in spiritually including the movies you watch, the articles you read, the social media you consume, anything and everything that you take in? What does your spiritual diet look like? And as a part of that, are you engaging in Bible reading and prayer on a regular basis, hopefully daily? So what kind of seeds are you sowing related to your own physical and spiritual health? Also, for those who are employed outside the home, Think about the seeds you're sowing related to your career. First of all, are you working hard and striving for excellence? Are you stealing from your employer in any way, including stealing through a lack of punctuality or a pattern of laziness? Are you being driven by greed or by a desire to serve others? Do you ever lie to or mislead those you encounter at work? Are you ever allowing yourself to be controlled by a desire to impress others or a fear of what others might think of you? And furthermore, if you're married, think about the seeds you're sowing related to marriage. Do you work through conflict in a healthy way? Are you allowing patterns of selfishness to go unchecked? Do you have a pattern of speaking harsh or careless words or exhibiting uncontrolled anger? Do you consistently seek your spouse's forgiveness for your sins. Are you regularly praying with your spouse and having meaningful interactions about spiritual things? Do you ever allow yourself to have any inappropriate interactions with members of the opposite sex who aren't your spouse? Even a single text message or flirt- flirtatious comment? Do you ever exhibit a lack of discretion in the circumstances in which you put yourself with members of the opposite sex who aren't your spouse? Then related to parenting, for those of us who have kids in the home, what kinds of seeds are you sowing as a parent? For example, how often do you deliberately spend quality time with your kids? How faithfully are you teaching your kids about Jesus? To what degree are you modeling godliness in the home? Are you teaching your kids about the value of a good work ethic and personal responsibility? To what degree are you involving your kids in evangelistic and outreach-related activities? And just like I asked with marriage, do you have a pattern of speaking harsh or careless words or exhibiting uncontrolled anger toward your kids? Are you putting your kids down, teasing them excessively, disregarding their feelings, or exasperating them? Do you ask for your kids' forgiveness whenever you sin against them? And are you consistent in disciplining your children Think also about your finances and the seeds you're sowing in that area of your life. Are you consistently taking on debt for things that don't increase in value? Are you using the wealth that God's entrusted to you in any way that isn't wise? Maybe gambling or just wasting money. And closely related to that, are you stewarding your wealth in a way that glorifies God through generous giving? And are you doing anything that falls short of demonstrating absolute financial integrity. Then finally, one more thing, consider the seeds that you're sowing related to church involvement. Are you prioritizing church gatherings above social and recreational activities? Are you tearing others down with your words or building them up? Are you participating in gossip of any kind? Do you have a fault-finding or critical spirit? Is there any bitterness or resentment you're nursing or any grudges you've been holding? Are you more concerned about your own personal comfort in the church or the advance of God's kingdom through the church? So again, I encourage you to identify two or three things from this list that you believe are especially relevant to you, and then prayerfully, with a, a reliance on the Holy Spirit, start working on it. The the things in your life. And if it would be helpful for you, I've actually put a stack of printouts um, on the the resource table back there. And those printouts have every single thing that I've just listed. In case you didn't get it all, it's all back there. Just take a sheet if you desire to do so on your way out. And uh, whatever help that can be. And again, the point I've been making is that sin always has consequences. right? As we see demonstrated in Genesis 29... And as we see specifically stated in Galatians 6-7, whatever one sows, that will he also reap. The seeds you sow today determine the kind of harvest you'll reap tomorrow. And I've already emphasized the, uh, the earthly consequences of our sin. But the fact is that there are also eternal consequences as well. Particularly for those who aren't yet Christians. You know, it might seem at times as though you can just go on sinning as much as you want and nothing that terrible ever happens to you. But be assured that one day you will reap the consequences of the sin that you've sown god himself will make sure that your sin receives the punishment that it deserves in hell for all eternity justice might be delayed for a time in order to give you an opportunity to repent but it won't ultimately be denied In Genesis 29, we see uh, Jacob experiencing some significant consequences for his devious and deceptive behavior in the previous chapters. But those consequences, as severe as they were, they pale in comparison to the consequences everyone will face for all eternity. I mean, do you really think that you can live an entire life of sowing to the flesh, as Paul says, and not reap the consequences of that? Do you really think God would allow that to happen? We've said it repeatedly, whatever one sows, that will he also reap. It's a universal law. However, The good news of the gospel is that Jesus interrupted that universal law when he came to this earth in order to rescue us. If you don't hear anything else I've said this whole morning, hear that. That's the most important thing you could probably get from this entire message. Jesus interrupted the universal law of sowing and reaping when he came to this earth in order to save us. You see, Jesus was fully God, yet he came to this earth as a human. And after living a perfectly sinless life, Jesus died on a cross. He, he voluntarily allowed himself to be crucified in order to pay for our sins. Right? Our sins were actually placed on his shoulders. So that instead of us having to suffer the, the penalty of those sins, Jesus suffered That penalty in our place, right? He suffered the wrath of God the Father so that we wouldn't have to. As the Apostle Paul states in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he, you know, God, made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. So understand what's happened Jesus reaped the consequences of the sin we sowed so that we could reap the benefits of the righteous life that he sowed. If you're taking notes, you might want to write that down. Jesus reaped the consequences of the sin we sowed so that we could reap the benefits of the righteous life he sowed. He endured the consequences of our sin so that we can enjoy the rewards of his righteousness. And yet we don't experience those rewards automatically. The Bible teaches that in order for us to benefit from what Jesus has done in his perfect life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection, that we have to put our trust in him for rescue. That means... We can't be trusting in ourselves or even in any habits that we develop in response to all those items that I just listed for you. Listen to me. You could spend every moment of the entire rest of your life trying your absolute best to do everything that I just listed a few moments ago. And you'll go straight to hell when you die. Only Jesus can save you. And he will, if you'll put your trust in him exclusively to do so. In addition, maybe you're here this morning and are in some sense already reaping a portion of what you've sown in the past. Maybe you're experiencing the consequences for things you've done in the past and are feeling nearly overwhelmed with misery And despair. Listen to me when I say that life, your life, isn't hopeless. Jesus offers you forgiveness and redemption and healing and freedom and wholeness and hope. Maybe you're tempted to think there's no hope for you. That's a lie. There is hope. And his name is Jesus. Jesus is the answer to whatever you've done in the past and to whatever you're going through in the present. Will you embrace him and put your trust in him to rescue you? Even today. You know, I've always appreciated the words of John Newton as he was lying on his deathbed. John Newton, in case you don't know, he um, in his, earlier in life, he was a slave trader. And uh, then, after doing that for a while, he became a Christian, and eventually became a pastor and a very vocal opponent of the slave trade. And he said this as he was laying on his deathbed. Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Do you have the confidence that Christ is your Savior today?